The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. So lieu of fun, let's at least not be bored. Come on, record. And we're live. <laughs> it's Monday, it's March 8th, April 18th. 5.06 p.m. Eastern Time, and we are not allowed to have fun anymore, uh, but we are allowed to have Asmat Khan um, on to talk to us uh, about all of her incredible journalism over the past, I think, seven years. I was going back to look at all of your clips and putting them out there for our audience, and I was like, wow, she's been doing this stuff since 2015, just absolutely, like, incredible journalism and investigative reporting and wartime correspondence. Um, for the New York Times Magazine, BuzzFeed, lots of other places. You are now, I'm just finding this out. I mean, I saw it, but I was like, I was unsure about how, how recent it happened, but you are now a professor of journalism at Columbia. Congratulations. They are so lucky to have you. Um, and, uh, but welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So um, I think that we, like, we usually start off with just kind of telling us a little bit about yourself how you found kind of, I guess, journalism generally, and then how you kind of came to the specific area of journalism that you've done, which I would say is conflict reporting. I don't know if you define it like that, um, but conflict reporting, and then I just kind of, and then we can kind of get into follow-up questions being things like, how has, it narrowed and changed in your mind over the last couple of years. I'm sure that like you, you see yourself as evolving a lot more that than is apparent to those of us on the outside. Yeah, no, um, well, it's, you know, I'm sure it looks, I always tell a lot of my students, I'm sure it looks really daunting that you're doing like that I'm in war zones and doing investigative journalism. But I think the path makes a lot more sense if you kind of step back and look at the trajectory of, of, how I got into this work, and it's a lot more accessible than one might think. Um, but, you know, I was in graduate school in England, uh, working on my thesis. And like, it was related to I did women's studies as a master's. And, you know, I was writing something that was like this thick about gender mainstreaming and relief work. And I really cared about injustice. And I cared about issues on the ground in a lot of the places that that I'd been interested in or worked in for a long time. And it occurred to me that maybe five people would read what I had written. And that thought was just too much to bear. I started to think more about journalism and reaching broader audiences. And I did a small- Wait, can I, can, I, well, can I just say something? Yeah. Is that true for us too? Shit. It never fucking occurred to me that Okay, um, I, 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 I got to thank you. By the way, thank you. I, I, but that's that's. I just realized how like how full of shade that sounded, but it is not. No, true. it's not. No, no. It's not true that in your case. Also, just very joking, like also self-effacing, recognizing <laughs> that's no, part I'm, of his shtick. No, no okay, I, go ahead. Yeah. 
No, I mean, if you have a podcast and you're reaching people in other ways too, you're obviously taking your work and making it more accessible. Um, but back then, I think I just wanted to learn more about journalism and the media. And so I did a small stint in the um, at the NBC affiliate where I grew up in Michigan. And then I just, and this was in 2008. And then I basically, because 2008 was an election year uh, and Michigan up until September was a battleground state, I took a lot of the work that I'd done at that local outlet that was related to the election and I brought it with me to Pakistan where maybe a decade before there had been one state TV news channel and now there were dozens. And I pitched myself backwards to some of those channels saying like, look, you want to cover the 2008 election. What happens in the United States really matters for Pakistan. Let me help you cover it. And so I was hired to help produce election coverage at an Urdu channel. And um, how did you how did you know, like, how did you did you have connections like back to Pakistan or like how did you get connected back there? Yeah, so I'm my parents there. originally from there. And so, you know, I do have extended family there and I have lots of friends there. And, you know, a lot of young people were working in the media industry there. Like I said, because it kind of opened up, like Musharraf had privatized the media. So all of a sudden there were a lot of opportunities, but it also has a rich history of newspaper journalism. So, you know, I, I did know some, I had some friends who worked in that space. Um, one of my friends from undergrad had gone on to be a producer, but Basically, what I did was I just asked, I look, looked up email addresses and set up meetings um, and, you know, brought like whatever pathetic reel I had made of these like, campaign visits to Michigan, which I think looked far more impressive than they in fact were. But, you know, just helped produce election coverage. I knew Washington to some extent, and that was how I got my in. And the Urdu channel that I was working at launched an English channel. And I essentially what I did was I reported for that year across Pakistan. Um, I'm sorry, did you did you speak in Urdu for the Urdu channel? Um, I do speak Urdu. I do have like I, I have wiped them from the internet. There are reports of me speaking Urdu. <laughs> this like accent okay. that, like makes it very apparent that I'm uh, a foreigner. Or I say, but but that that's that is a super. I mean. That's a superpower, um, you know, like you know, to be able to to to, to speak to speak, you know, Urdu and English um, um, for, for that for that for for that purpose. But it did take a lot of initiative and ambition, and just like hustle to to, to contact. I mean, it's really I, I really admire that. Thank you. Um, you know, I feel like it was just. It was a, also a kind of exceptional time period because all these channels were popping up. So there were more opportunities, I think, as well. Um, and and just to be fair, I did have to hire someone um, to teach me a lot of the words that I didn't know. Like I grew up speaking Urdu, but obviously I don't know how to say oil rig in Urdu. It never came up in our household. <laughs> so there was a lot of vocabulary I needed to learn and I was by no means perfect. Um, and so that Urdu channel launched an English channel while I was there and I started reporting for them and was, you know, given a show related to uh, U.S.-Pakistan relations and other kinds of foreign relations and just spent the year um, going across the country into various parts uh, doing different kinds of reporting. And I, I really think it's so valuable for so many of the reporters I know to go spend some time in local media abroad. I think that it you know, allows you to look at a country, not just through the prism of what you would then 
for example, freelance to, you know, US outlets or pitch to them, but it allows you to see things from the perspectives of people who live there. And it's just a very valuable experience. And I was there for about a year. Okay, can I, that, but I mean, that's a very, um, I mean, that's, that's a very um, difficult and heady thing to do. I mean, I imagine you're at the beginning of your career um, to like go to, 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 to represent, you know, the United, you know, this, this presidential election, you know, for Pakistani, I, I mean, and then cross the country. I mean, that's, that's, that you know i imagine you start out in the business by getting people coffee you know not not not, not <laughs> you that. know what's so funny is that there was um so my name is Azmat, and there was actually a young tri boy who got people coffee named Azmat. and one of the like great terrible things of my career that i remember is that people kept calling out Azmat for chai and i would like look around all confused and one day the news director called up Azmat, and they were like the other Azmat. And they were like, Azmat, what's your father's name? And he was like, Bashir. And so the news director announced that his new name was Bashir Jr. <laughs> Why? Um, so no, I was not, I was not the Azmat getting chai, but I, I definitely owe him. I owe him. <laughs> I have a funny, okay, sorry. I'm just really small, but like when I started out at ABC News, um, it was my first job out of college as an associate producer for abcnews.com. And there was this pr producer um, that insisted on calling me Cubby um, for Cub Reporter. Um, uh, and like all of, and I was like, I was so, and like, sorry, I was so desperate to be liked and to get a job that I just gave zero fucks. And like all of the women in the newsroom <laughs> were like, stop letting him do this. Like, push back. Don't let him call you Cubby. And I was just like, I think it means he likes me. And they were like, <laughs> anyways, sorry, I didn't get to change my name to like Evelyn Jr., which is my mom's name. But like, I should have. I feel like whether or not I better. connect someone is based on whether or not I actually like them. And if I like them, I'll let it go. But if I don't, I'll be like, oh, actually, it's not Cubby, it's Azmat. I can help you pronounce something <laughs> kind of shady like that. Whoa. Exactly. Yes, yeah, that's I think good. That that's like, that's good. That's I agree. Good, yeah, um, yeah. So anyway, so you started doing this. You're in Pakistan. You're doing the 20, 2008 election. Now you're on an English language channel. Um, and so how did like, but you're still doing, are you doing, this is, this is, um, this is like TV at this point. This is video. Yeah, TV. And actually it, like, I think I was near, there was a Pakistani military operation in Sawat um, that you might remember back then. And um, I was, I went to go cover it. And while I was down there, I started, I got a phone call from somebody claiming to be Taliban and, you know, referencing a lot of things about me personally and saying, you know, we're going to kill you in 20 days. And like this kind of weird countdown started. I left the country briefly. I came back and I started getting these calls and messages and they were just so bizarre. Um, they would be like, you're in this car you know, with this license plate number, you're currently at this address and we're going to kill you in 15 days, 14 days. Were, were, were you at the time at the, at, in that car at that? Oh, so, that is, what, uh, so it was like so creepy. And I remember like, they kept that, that, that's like creepy. Creepy That is that, like the bravest person in the world thinks that's creepy. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, the, that this is terrifying. This is like, this yeah, is like saw. Is like, this is. This is <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is terrible. 
I mean, it was, they were like, they would say things like, they would skip days sometimes, like in their count. And I would be like, excuse me, you skipped a day. It was like the whole thing was so bizarre. And um, I tried. Whoa. Yes. And I tried to. I tried to get it stopped, right? So we had like people look into this and the company that had like invested in me in the show, like obviously didn't want me to just like depart in the middle of nowhere. So um, we weren't able to get it stopped, which makes me think like on many levels, I don't believe that this was a Taliban. They have no reason to be like randomly going after some young woman on an English channel, right? Like this is not their audience by any means. Like I think I must have, like my prevailing theory my total speculation is that I must have pissed off some guy and he went to like one of his friends in the ISI or something like that and like had them harass me just for fun. Um, because nothing else really- That is like, that is a, that is a bold risk to take, I would still say. Like, I mean, yes, I get what you're saying and you know this, like the political kind of like, you know, you know, how some of this, you know, but I still think it's a very, I mean, to be fair, I was scared. Kind of I mean, I yeah, okay. I'm not like, it's not like I was like, oh, this is no problem. But it was, I mean, it was creeping me out. Ultimately, I wound up leaving like when I had like a few days left. Um, and it was like, a, it was really awful to leave work suddenly that I'd spent all of this time in. I'd intended to stay there for a lot longer. Um, and so I came back to the United States and kind of had to start all over. And ultimately, you know, I got this job at the PBS series Frontline. And that was, you know, where I was. And I was Heard there. Of it? Yeah, I was there I, for the I, years. I, 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 so Frontline is to me the, hi, the, the highest form of documentary uh, um, uh, journalism. I mean, it is. And also, the guy's voice is amazing. Will Lyman. Oh, oh my God. God. <laughs> uh, I mean, seriously. Like, party raffle if you want it he would record your voicemail your outgoing voicemail thank you wow. i would have gotten some people coffee if i could enter that raffle <laughs> that's incredible <laughs> wow um yeah but no i loved frontline i consider yeah. it like kind of my own journalism school in so many ways because it's just such yeah. a bastion of like standards and ethics for our industry not even just for documentary film but if you have time, I would recommend going to Frontline's website and looking at the journalistic guidelines because they're some of the most like thoughtful and interesting ones that you can read um, of any outlet today. It's just ugh, an amazing place, um, really oh, special. Yeah, no, it, 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 that's right. Because this documentary clinic that I run, we what we, we the the highest thing and the hardest outlet to get is Frontline to take on your your work because that's really considered the gold standard. Um, like they have the highest standards. Anyway, so that's really so cool that you worked in it. Although I think you're doing an unbelievably terrible job selling how easy it is to get into this profession. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it sounds to me like, I, I mean, that like, like really only you could, I, I, I just, I, I, this yeah, is not incredible. This yeah. Like, no, getting that job was a six month process and then, but it was also very entry level. Right. Um, so like I can tell you, I, it's early on when I started, like I had to answer viewer mail, <laughs> um, you know, as part of my job, I had to do like, I was like going through archives of old tapes. Um, 
in the beginning of first year I was there, we didn't have bylines. We just like wrote in this like frontline voice on the website. So, but I remember writing such like eclectic, fun, weird things. So I remember doing research into like why you should get a second autopsy <laughs> if you're confused about the results and how you can, you know, why it serves you to go. But back. not you, not you get a second autopsy. But like, that's like the thing, which is like every month there's a new film and they span everything from like the problems of forensic examiners across the country to, you know, the war in Afghanistan as it's unfolding. And it was just such a, like, it was great. I started out as a researcher and I worked my way up to a, um, a producer and I wrote a lot for the website. So it was just really wonderful. And that's when I got into investigative journalism, um, which. And so you switched over and you started like, I mean, it's also scary. Like, I don't know what your relationship is with the New York Times Magazine and now, um, like, which I think your first piece was in 2017. With the magazine? Yes, that was in 2017 yes. with the with them. Yes. And I. Um, uh, yeah, so I had yeah. an exclusive uh, contract with them. Got it. And uh, I can't be full time at the Times because I have this job at Columbia. But yes, that's who I write for, um, both the magazine and then the newspaper as well. So just to kind of like give a little bit of background to people, in 2008, I was working at Esquire as an editorial assistant. I left the job at ABC News for the unpaid, for the barely paid editorial assistant Esquire job because I hated ABC News and being called Cubby so much, really, that was it. No, I actually kind of was, <laughs> like I really didn't like it there. Um, but, uh, and I was like young and impetuous and thought that I would be able to get jobs, whatever. Anyways, um, I will never forget, it was just like a little small thing, but I did an invoice, paying out an invoice for this person who had written it, like a 9,000 word piece going all the way to Africa and doing all of this kind of, I forget the piece, it was like doing post-war reporting. It was post-war, it was like about kind of covering all this stuff. And he had had all of these expenses, like $18,000 in expenses or something like that. And like, I mean, it had been a year and a half of like kind of covering it. So it's not actually that crazy. And then he had written this piece for us and he was getting paid $10,000. And like, okay, I was like getting paid 15, like I don't even think it was 15 at that age. I think it was like 12 or something. And I was like, holy crap, this is where the money is. And then like someone like, someone above me pulled me aside and was like, by the way, that is their like one job for the entire year. And they were like, just $10,000 is not actually a lot of money to write one article um, and like that type of thing. And I was like, oh, wow, yeah. And like now I kind of know that to be true, but that is like to do this type of work requires a lot of like, a lot of your own expenses being paid or having a contract or being on contract in some type of way or applying for outside journalism supporting grants and so it's really difficult um so how did you get people to trust you basically enough to go over to these places and invest in you as kind of a conflict journalist to be able to kind of either front that or to like trust your reporting coming out of that i mean that's it's 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 a lot yeah. So, I mean, I didn't just jump into it all of a sudden, Yeah, you know, I'd had that year in Pakistan locally, which really helped, um, you know, to operate on the ground elsewhere to show that you can do it is certainly helpful for anyone who's thinking about doing this. Um, I did apply for grants that would, you know, bring you on trips with other reporters. So I did like an international reporting fellowship and went to Brazil, for example. 
Um, I'd studied abroad at the American University in Cairo. So when the Egyptian revolution broke out and Frontline was working on a film about the Muslim Brotherhood and, you know, I don't remember, I think the circumstances originally were that we needed to get like equipment there. They sent me and they said, go ahead and associate produce this film or, you know, help field produce it. And so, you know, I, I did. And some of what I what I what I had to do was help with lighting and like make up on somebody's, you know, the correspondence knows, but also like, you know, a lot of these interviews and um, a lot of that reporting on the ground and producing. Um, so you just I built up those experiences over time and it I would just definitely make it apparent to anyone if you like want particular opportunities make it apparent that you want those particular things and ask for the things that you want and be comfortable if someone tells you no and continue to ask and ask them, you know, what could I do in the meantime to be more competitive next time? Um, that always helps, you know, to show that initiative and then to take up, you know, whatever that advice might be. Um, and then eventually, you know, I landed on an investigations team at BuzzFeed and that's when I did like the first big piece of war accountability reporting that I think has become a kind of framework for a lot of my work in the time since. Um, and for that, you know, it was Afghanistan, a place I've been before, a place where, you know, I feel not comfortable. I don't think I ever feel comfortable anywhere. Um, there's a lot of prep work you have to do, but I did a bunch of, you know, I had an idea, a story idea in mind that looked at American claims about education there and a means like a systematic approach that I could use to really investigate whether those claims about the numbers of schools built, about the numbers of children enrolled, um, to really fact check some of the statements that the United States had made for so many years of that war to help build support for it. Um, so basically, you know, if you look back at the landscape of coverage from Afghanistan, back when I was looking at this during the first big drawdown, a lot of it really looked at, this is back in 2014, a lot of it really focused on many of the failures of the war. And this one kind of untouched area was education. You know, it was what was brought up in congressional hearings when we talked about all of these other failures, but here's the one upside. We've built X many schools. We've done this many particular things for them. And I learned that there was a database of every USAID funded school in the country with their geolocations, with their coordinates and contractor information. And I was able to get my hands on that database. And the investigation I proposed was, what if I do a sample of these schools? What if I show up at them and look at whether or not they're still there, whether um, you know these schools were built up to standard, what happened with the contractors? Who were these contracts given to? And basically, you know, what I wound up finding was just exactly all of the failures of the U.S. war in Afghanistan were exemplified, even in a, something as noble as an endeavor like building schools. You know, you had warlords, contracts given to warlords, um, schools missing in the places they were supposed to be. And it turned out it had been built in the, you know, notorious police chief Abdul Razik's home area where there were no children to attend it for the first three years. Um, because he must have wanted that contract or like deals that were made in which the United States, you know, obtained records that showed they would look the other way if somebody was clearly trying to profit off of something, you know, and was somebody they needed as a security partner on the ground. And so I had Americans telling me things like, yeah, I knew he was a warlord, but he was our warlord. Um, I'd recommend reading that. Um, 
but it was also a i just put a link to it in the chat but yeah, yeah. It, i mean it's in a tremendous piece yeah thank you yeah I, um, I, I do you I, go ahead scott I, I actually hadn't realized you you were actually you're you also were one of the two authors on the uncounted i i hadn't realized that i, yeah. I mean um with 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 anand gopal um that that's an amazing piece as well i put that in the in the chat as well i mean that's very bracing and upsetting yeah the uncounted was like built off of the same framework that i'd used for ghost schools where i was like you know these numbers aren't making sense about us airstrikes and this is back in early 2016. And i was looking at the war against isis and coverage around it and these numbers that the united states were claiming just weren't adding up this would be just astronomically if, if true and i think when i first started to look at this there had been eight civilian deaths admitted or 24 admitted and claims of tens of thousands of isis fighters killed and that just didn't square with reality, but there wasn't really anyone systematically trying to investigate this on the ground. And so I was looking for a systematic approach to that. I could not acquire all of the coordinates for strikes, for example, the way I did with that database for schools. But I thought, you know, why don't I do a cluster bait? Well, why don't I do a sample? And I started out in one town and with Anand Gopal, who's a sociologist, we designed the structure for a cluster based sample. And so I just kept going to like, you know, more and more sample areas to try to get up to a statistically significant number of airstrikes, which is I just needed to get to 100. And ultimately, I wound up sampling three cluster areas, doing interviews, going through damage, and that became the uncounted. And the findings of that were essentially that, you know, if you look at the you know, America's press releases and claims about this war, and I built a database of all of its claims and admissions of casualties, one in every 157 airstrikes at the time, according to their numbers, was resulting in a civilian death. According to the sample that we did on the ground, one in five was. So that's a rate that's 31 times higher than what the United States was claiming. And it was quite damning. And I fought really hard to get that embed with the US military at its like nerve center in the CAOC, the Combined Air Operations Center in Qatar from which you know, we largely direct this air campaign. And you know, I was able to get them to check coordinates, which was like a whole ordeal. Um, and they would tell me like, yes, it's unlikely or likely that we conducted this airstrike. You know, here's what we believe the target to be. But I could never take what I'd learned from these visits of, of strikes on the ground and present my evidence and get them to really respond to the details of it. They would just say, we hit, X, Y, Z target in that place. I couldn't really get past the, well, the intelligence that we have is the basis for this classified. So we can't tell you, we're not really gonna engage with what you're saying to me. And that became the basis, that kind of refusal to get past that became the basis for my most recent work, the civilian casualty files. It was like, okay, I did what I could with the uncounted. We know that these numbers are radically wrong and nobody else is looking at it, this on the ground but like why are they happening like what is going wrong here why do they think they've hit a target and what actually happened what did they think that they were doing here what was it based on how good is their intelligence but or or, or is, they were or, or they were just lying so i you know i think that that was the theory right that i had but i couldn't i'm a <laughs> 
I can't accuse somebody of lying without having evidence to back that up, right? No, I no, I just said. Uh, no, I love said, this about your work. Right. No, but yeah. I mean, you don't need. All you need is the absence of evidence that it can't be the case in order to say it could be this or it could be that. Yeah, I mean, well, we did say like it appears that this percentage of them, half of them, were the result of poor or outdated intelligence. You know, it suggests that. Um, and I think at the time, you know, I did catch them in, in, I mean, it, it depends on if you want to call this a lie or not, but they would say, no, we didn't strike this area. And I would find videos that they had uploaded to YouTube, YouTube showing like a direct hit in the location that I'd reported on the date that I'd reported. And I would do these, I'd have these like elaborate back and forths with them. And like, that might be an instance where you're like, wow, they're lying. But for me, like I did these like in-depth back, back and forths to basically learn that the way they recorded airstrikes was such that they would group them together. They would put multiple engagements as one airstrike. Like if you read my latest story in the New York Times magazine, I describe how, you know, I went to the site strike in Ramadi, but it was like one of 18 strikes that were considered one strike um, in Ramadi that day, in and around Ramadi. So they were like grouping these together, but they would only input the location for one of those into the database that they would then search, right? So they might be searching their database and saying, we have no record of this. We didn't conduct a strike, but their database is wrong. So it's, it's less so that they're overtly lying to me so much as they are collecting things in a manner that makes most of their ability to even tell where their strikes took place is extremely questionable. And that matters because when somebody reports an allegation of a civilian casualty, what do they check to ascertain whether or not that took place? They check this extremely flawed, inaccurate database. And that's where this like lying thing. And I, I think that- it, it, it's, it's, it's not merely that it's inaccurate, is that it radically undercounts what they do. So it- It's incomplete. It, it's vastly incomplete. It's not. Um, but do you think it's purposefully so, Osmond? Like, do you think that there's like, do you think that someone lets it be incomplete because they think it benefits them? So this is what I wrote about in the civilian casualty files. And I would recommend, you know, if you have a chance to read it, to read it, because, you know, it was a, a question I was struggling with. And I think this is so important is that we go through the United States has one of the most rigorous processes in the world for assessing whether or not, or the most complex process, the most detailed process for assessing whether or not we have, you know, uh, our airstrikes have resulted in civilian casualties, right? It puts Russia and other countries to shame. But when you start to unpack it, what I was finding was that the processes that we would go through, often what was happening was that they were unaware of the presence of civilians in the first place, right? That happened again and again. In fact, that was the leading factor involved in the civilian casualties. And so basically, I, I just want to explain what the civilian casualty files is quickly. I wound up suing the US government. I filed these Freedom of Information Act requests from US Central Command and the US and, and the US, the Pentagon. For all of these assessments, you know, they have this, they, they've been bragging about this process for years now. They've been putting out these press releases that I've been putting into a database each admission and each rejection into this database I built. And basically, because they've, they're coming to a conclusion about each of those, there should be an assessment associated with each of those. So I filed for them under the Freedom of Information Act, not just citing 
you know, this is important because it's federal government activity and, you know, the public, there's public interest asking for expedited processing, but also because there was risk of imminent harm. That was like the kind of unique argument I made for why they should process these quickly. So I didn't get them in like 10 years, but instead- It's a great, it's a creative and great argument, honestly. Thank you. You know, I basically just cited like a survivor um, from The Uncounted. This is when I was doing that first reporting. Um, His name is Basim Razo, he's incredible. But he had told me, and he'd even put into a report he'd written himself that he was really afraid of going back to his house. He was survived a US airstrike that killed his wife and his daughter and his brother and his nephew and woke up in the middle of the night with his bed split in a V shape and like looking up and there was no roof, but he could see like the stars over Mosul. And and basically- you describe it. Don't you describe him specifically in your piece? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, I remember this image so well, like, yeah. Like, sorry, like I haven't read it in a couple of years, but like, yeah. yeah. No. Well, Bassem, you know, really went on a quest for justice and tried to understand what happened. And one of his fears that he articulated when he went on that quest was, you know, I'm afraid of going back to Mosul because people will think I'm ISIS because I was targeted. Even the U.S. even put up a YouTube video of the strike on his home and called it a car bombing factory. And, you know, when I asked the military about it, they're like, we have no record of the strike. And I'm like, here's this video that you have. And they had to, they had to basically confront that. Um, but I wound up putting in a Freedom of Information Act request for the record in Bossom's case and citing his fears and saying there's risk of imminent harm if you don't release these records to me quickly so that he can clear his name. You have records that show that he was, this is a civilian casualty incident. I would like it so I can publish a story about it. So because I was granted a expedited processing in that case, I filed requests for these more than 1300 others under that same kind of rubric and sued and here in the Southern District of New York and then just started getting these files. Like every other month I would get a batch of documents. And then basically what I did was I worked really hard to match them to places on the ground that I could go visit. And, you know, there's, there are scenes from, you know, there's some of these I went to in 2018. One was a mass casualty incident in a part portion of Syria where the document says, like a one, I originally got like a one page document that said, you know, between seven and 24 civilians were killed and like lots of it was redacted and you had very little understanding of what they were basing that on. But I went on the ground and it was more than four times that amount. And they had not detected the presence of civilians. They didn't know that more than a hundred people were sheltering in these homes that they then targeted. And that kind of missite. So basically what I wound up doing was how many of these cases that are in these documents, can I go and visit on the ground? And I spent a large part of last year in Mosul, essentially going to as many of them as I could, in addition to, you know, some of the other areas I went, Hawija, Iraq, Syria, Ramadi, to try to really understand, like, why these are happening and what are the shortcomings? Like, what, how accurate is U.S. intelligence and their claims? Because these assessments get into details about what their intel was and what they, basically what they had acknowledged or assumed. And they also have what essentially are their their own legal reviews. Every single one has a legal review in which they say, in fact, you know, this was carried out within the laws of war. Um, You know, not in a single case was there an instance um, in any of the documents I have, can you find any text that mentions disciplinary action for those involved 
any findings of wrongdoing um, or any, there's like one possible rule of engagement violation in all 1300 of these records. But for the most part, what these documents do is they walk you through the process we've gone through. And, you know, that we claim is, you know, the basis for, you know, why we're not violating the laws of war, why this was done in accordance with the laws of armed conflict um, and rules of engagement and all of these things. But basically what I wound up quoting in the, the civilian casualty files is someone who walks us through, you know, why, what the U.S., why the U.S. military might go through this extensive bureaucratic process. And, you know, one one official said that it was used to help expand authority to take greater action by showing like this rigorous process, putting it down on paper, um, and also to protect U.S. service personnel from allegations of wrongdoing, right, to really prevent them from accusations of war crimes, but also then to provide comfort, like psychological comfort to those who are involved in this work, right, to say that, hey, I did the process, I went through this, you know, we did what we could, and to feel better about it. Um, and I think you can also read a little bit of my own takeaway from that, um, which I think I might just briefly um, read to you. Um, there we go. Here we go. Design. Here we go. As I previously reported in the Times, over the past three years, I obtained more than 1,300 of these credibility assessments through the Freedom of Information Act. The reports cover allegations surrounding strikes between this period. What I saw after studying them was not a series of tragic errors, but a pattern of impunity, of a failure to detect civilians to investigate on the ground, to identify causes and lessons learned, to discipline anyone or find wrongdoing that would prevent these recurring problems from happening again and again. It was a system that seemed to function almost by design to not only mask the true toll of American airstrikes, but also <clears throat> legitimize their expanded use. Wow, I mean, really like well put and i i mean i i feel like it is such a the the restraint that you have the fact that you could read that in like basically 30 seconds is like saying a lot about your dedication to first principles and having evidence to like support your conclusions and the fact that that like that you have such restraint and that's like kind of what you take away from it, I think actually speaks more than if you had had something that was hyperbolic or super ideological or anything else. I actually kind of think that that's a profound statement to, to, to kind of make. Thank you. Um, we have a bunch of amazing questions. I've almost been like kind of too lost in listening to you, like in a Scott-like way to like remember to bring in, to remember to bring in questions. But Richard has an incredible question um, and he has read your work, seems like extensively or he's very familiar with it, but Richard, nice to see you. Hi. Hi. So first of all, I, I wanted to congratulate you on the Polk Award and uh, I know it's no substitution for justice, but um, I'm glad to see that your work is getting more and more recognition. And so mm -hmm. I hope that that will bear some fruit. Um, I noticed uh, in the in the response that sent um, provided to the New York Times on your reporting that um, that the, the spokesman, I guess Captain Urban, uh, 
he is his name uh, he repeatedly asserted that the actions of the US military in these cases complied with the law of armed conflict and that in some cases even exceeded the requirements of the LOAC um, I, I'm just wondering how contestable are these assertions uh, or in other words is he is he treading in a you know at best is he treading in a gray area or are there reasons to um, to believe that uh, you know to argue that the U.S. has actually violated the LOAC in this in these cases. That's a great question, and you know I would really recommend going and looking through some of these um, reports that we published. We published all thirteen hundred of these files that I obtained, and you know the way that they do this is like let's say they want to strike something that had formerly functioned as a school, they would take that off of the no strike list if they could say that this was no longer being used as a school. So it would not be called a school. Same with a bakery. Um, they would classify something as dual use or exclusive use. And one might be, you know, um, you know, if they could say this was being exclusively used by ISIS, you know, the process they would have to go through would be less complex than if they were to say this was dual use. Um, I'm sorry, the process they would go through would be quicker if they were saying that this was just exclusively used by ISIS. And what I found over and over again was that they would classify something as one way, which would then allow it to comply with the law of armed conflict. But the reality is, is that on the ground, it was dual use, but they'd called it exclusive use. Um, or that this was, they misidentified a target, or they were not aware of the presence of civilians. So they may have like followed these laws or whatever they might be, as they interpret them, but the reality on the ground is, you know, had they were they more familiar, if they'd done more surveillance, if they knew more, they would very readily realize that they were targeting something that was being used by civilians. Um, and so I think that a large reason for why they're able to state that there are no um, violations of this is that they go through this process. It's like the rigorousness, of, it's the rigor of this process is what makes it even possible to say that. Um, but if you look at what they're familiar with and what they're aware of, it becomes a different story. You know, I have, I, I would also encourage you to think about, you know, the, you know, I have, I keep hearing people talk about war crimes um, in the context of Ukraine and they'll be like, look, They'll play a video of an airstrike hitting a city center or an intersection and cars and like civilians are in the area. And I and they'll call that a war crime, you know, and I have seen so many examples of that happening in Iraq and Syria. Nobody would ever call that a war crime. Right. There is a kind of. You know, I can think about roundabouts, about civilian areas, about bakeries, about um, wells, a lot of like this was shocking to me is that a lot of the strikes that I investigated on the ground in Mosul where, where civilian casualty incidents where people had been in line to gather well water um, because there was like a shortage of water in the, you know, in the liberation periods. And that's when the strike hit. And if you're not aware of that, right, you're doing your pattern of life analysis and it's not a very deep one. And you're kind of in a hurry because you're carrying out airstrikes at such intense pace and you don't know, you're not, you're not deliberately targeting a civilian area because you're not you don't know that it's a civilian area or you haven't classified it that way like, of course you're not going to violate your own interpretation of the laws of war does that make hey, sense can I, yeah, yeah can i just say one thing though but so i do think 
the difference is, first of all, I mean, you're you're obviously right that there's a double standard. Um, I, 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 I think I think there's no question about that. Like there's a, a the brazen Russian aggression against Ukraine, but we don't say brazen American aggression against Iraq. I mean, it, like so so there's that. But there's but. But the difference is, is that it does seem as if Russia is targeting civilians, whereas I don't believe that um, the well, U.S. military me, is targeting civilians. Well, re- let me just clarify. Sorry, just okay. if I may. Um, yeah, I sorry, sure, not, sure. I'm like very wary. I want to be very careful. I am not equating these two things. And I just want to really no, push back. No, on no, that. I no, but be OK, OK, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And um. And there is a key difference also that I just want to point out, which is that there are many Russians on the ground conducting some of the most intentional and blatant acts of civilian targeting that we have seen in so long, right? Decapitating or I do not, by, by no means are these similar. But what I will say, I think the point I was trying to make is that I'm hearing people label things war crimes based on evidence, you know, watching a video of something hitting a, you know, a, a an intersection, right? And we don't know, right? Like we don't know what they were targeting in that situation in that intersection, right? But you know, with the United States, what they would do is they they would be more transparent about what they were hitting, right? Or what they believed that they were hitting. And there's a really interesting distinction here between what people are willing. I'm not talking about cases in which, you know, they're very clearly deliberately there's soldiers on the ground executing ordinary civilians. I'm talking about the media's own uh, understanding of what a war crime is and what it's comfortable labeling based on a mere video, right? Yeah, but but isn't there like just a background assumption that they've seen many other videos, they've seen that Mariupol is like burnt Of course they have, but I'm talking about individual incidents, right? So like I watch CNN, right? And I've seen them be like, look at this example of a war crime. Right. And they're talking about that specific video that they're now watching. And that video, you know, we don't know what the I'm not saying that it isn't one. I'm just saying you never would have seen them watch a similar video out of Iraq and Syria and say the same thing based on the same amount of information. Because there's a zero percent. Well, I wouldn't say zero percent chance because it's highly unlikely that the American military was targeting in the in the legal sense, civilians. That is, they might have accepted. I agree. I, nobody's yeah. saying they're targeting civilians. I think the distinction here is that what you're seeing in like some of these examples that I'm drawing from with Russia, these are not things where you know exactly what it is that they're targeting. You don't. You're not exactly. familiar with it. You just aren't. I see what you're saying. So, so I think so. As a non-expert, just to kind of like, I think that you guys are actually arguing over something that's very. I think you're arguing it like like at this you're actually agreeing which is basically just that like essentially that like i think that osmont tell me if i'm wrong here but i think that what you're basically saying is that there there's no way to prove intentionality from a video and so the same exact type of video is getting labeled what is getting labeled a war crime in the ukraine context that wasn't getting labeled a war crime in something like in something like the in the us like in iraq context and that like because of that it's kind of absurd that like something different is happening here and there's so much intentionality being kind of read into some of these videos despite the fact that all of these people just have the same amount of evidence before them 
as like yeah I mean is that I'm talking about media comfort with what they're labeling based on limited information that they might have from a single video right or from a particular thing that they might be looking at but I just want to make sure because it's very important to me that I'm not being accused of uh creating some kind of false equivalence here like I do not think that these are equal I do not think that the United States okay. deliberately is targeting civilians the whole point is that they conduct these operations in a manner in which they are not seeing the true reality on the ground often, right? right. So yeah. it's not intentionally targeting, but if you're taking actions that make it possible, you're relying on seconds of video footage to make some of your determinations. Yeah. You're doing investigations that are based solely on the video and original intelligence used to carry out that strike so that you don't know what actually happened. Um, and then you're not learning lessons based on those mistakes that you've previously made. To what extent are you actually aware that what you're targeting might be a civilian target or might be civilians. Right. So I agree with everything. And I would never and I, you know, we're so lucky that we have such a intelligent audience. Nobody would have ever taken you to be arguing about false equivalence. I mean, yeah, like, you actually are. I really fine. Don't want to be, like, it's not just I don't think you're accusing me of that. I just wouldn't want somebody to misunderstand that. Um, no, I know. But but that's what I'm saying. Our audience is so smart. They would never um, um, yeah, think that. But I, yeah. I, 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 I get I get your I get your point um, uh, there. To, to me, there there's there's like so many there's so many other kinds of things that the media does that 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 feels um uh false equivalency that um that this you know the, the the thing is the the russian invasion of ukraine is is such a it's so rare um that you have this re at least imagined you know um uh spec uh, you know of uh, um uh, uh like camera a uh, film of of like atrocities happening in real time and so like since it's it's happening all over like any particular thing the the the, the doubt is going to be resolved against uh russia in the in these instances um but 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 i guess you're, we should be super media needs to be super careful i i agree with that uh, can, may I ask you what, what what you're working on now? Mm -hmm. So I'm actually I was also going to ask that. Yeah, okay. I'm working on a book on this subject actually about American air wars and what it means to essentially shift the costs of war. Right when we conduct wars in these ways that are so asymmetric. Right, a lot of our adversaries don't have in, in the wars that we've been fighting in Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan. They don't have air power. Right. Um, so what you have essentially is very few service members dying in American air wars compared to wars past. In fact, fewer Americans died uh, in hostile death, like more Americans died by suicide in Operation Inherent Resolve, the war against ISIS, more died by suicide than in hostile deaths. So what you're seeing is essentially some of the lowest rates of service member deaths, which means that most of those dying are partner forces we rely on on the ground and um, foreign civilians. And what does it mean when you take that away? And when when many Americans aren't dying, most Americans are not aware that we're even at war. So it's easier to fight these wars, perpetuate them, forget about them, as others have said. Um, but it also means that a 
a key factor that has led to accountability in wars past, right? That has led to not just anti-war movements, but congressional action, congressional accountability, looking into what's going wrong and why, that's now gone. And I think a really great example of that is Afghanistan, right? Like when we had troops on the ground through until the beginning of 2015, like large numbers of them, you saw a great deal of accountability around that war. And the second that you start to take most of those troops out, and we started to really just fight that war largely by air, you saw attention recede dramatically. So 2019 was a year in which we dropped more bombs in Afghanistan than in any other year of the war. And in 2019, you also saw the least amount of coverage in the media of that war. And so but like, this just makes me hate the media. Like, no offense, but like, okay. And I, this is like- media, it's like congressional accountability I mean, too. I know, I know, but like, and I, we have to go to Itamar because he's been like waiting in like the wings to ask this question. His question is great. But I just want to say like the world's smallest violin compared to these actual deaths in war and conflict is like so much of what you're saying about how you're talking about the accountability and the systems and the counting and the, the people and how it works and the back and forths of checking numbers like is so weirdly similar to like just some of like the stuff I do around speech takedowns with with the tech companies. And it's like the and then it's just kind of like and then every time the media something big happens, the media just erases all of the nuance. It just like it's like just like just like eviscerated from like the dialogue. And then of course, like I mean I feel stupid even making this comparison, frankly, because like what you're talking about is so much more important. But like I just have to say for a second that there is just like that it strikes me as a more is a much more like systemic problem around how like how the world comes to these problems, the attention span of an audience and the entire way that we fund both social media and media, which is all to kind of make it like not necessarily like PBS. And in fact, we very much don't want it to be like PBS like all the time, um, but to kind of like, anyways, the, the a lot of the same problems with funding on an ad-based revenue stream lead to the same, to a lot of the conclude, like the, the clickbaity and simple answers that you're talking about. And like, you know, an appreciation for the, the kind of journalism that you do that's like at a very high end type of level and appreciated in like the pages of the New York Times Magazine. But like, I mean, that has a great reach, but also like, it doesn't have the reach of, I don't know, like Tucker Carlson, maybe, or like something else that is like boiling something down to a different type of level. Yeah. I mean, it's not just media, too. Like media is driven by public interest. And I think that public interest right. is also lower when somebody on every street or, you know, you don't know somebody dying in our wars or coming back from being deployed on the ground in a really scary place. I think Congress is also very moved by those particular actions. And I think, you know, Niger is a great example of that. Many Americans and many members of Congress were not really paying attention to the U.S. footprint um, or the U.S. war in that region of Africa or the fact that we had been flying surveillance drones in that region until four American soldiers died in 2017 in that ground raid. And suddenly Congress took action on that. Suddenly they really wanted to know, like, where has this mission creep occurred? And I think that that factor, like the deaths of Americans, it is a wonderful thing that fewer Americans are dying in our wars. But one of the impacts of that 
is also then that some of those mechanisms for accountability in which we ask, why are we at war in this particular place? You know, what are we doing here? When you take away a lot of those constraints or the, what are the political costs of war, we've now shifted a lot of those costs onto foreign populations. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. Um, Itamar, oh my gosh, last word in a crazy conversation that you, I mean, an amazing conversation, um, but I, I loved, um, I loved the kind of the the send off that your that your question responds to. So go ahead. Uh, thanks. Uh, so I kind of have a question about like the business of investigative journalism because it's a really important work, but on the other hand, it doesn't really make business sense. And that if you like do a good job, then the paper gets prestige, but it's not like getting revenue from it. <laughs> so in that light, like. How much of your work is like marketing and convincing people to give you uh, money for your project? And how do you choose which projects to pursue when there are like so many low hanging fruit and obvious questions to ask, but you like only have such a limited amount of bandwidth to choose what to do? Yeah, Asmet, how come you're not just recapitulating people's tweet threads? <laughs> like, on, come on, the New York Times would totally put that in its magazine. <laughs> no, I'm I'm not joking, Itamar. That was actually like a serious. Like, obviously, there are like there are media models that that do that. So, this is um, a great question, and honestly, I really struggled in the beginning. Like, this was a story I really wanted to do. Um, I thought like everyone would be interested in it early on. And honestly, I even thought like, oh, if I team up with Anand, it'll be like me, this investigative journalist and this great writer. And like, who could say no to the two of us? <laughs> everyone, many institutions said no um, when we first pitched that story, The Uncounted. Um, and it was like, at, and I just continued to do it. So in the beginning, I cashed out my retirement. Eventually I got a commission at Matter, a publication that folded while I was in the field. <laughs> And they like paid out for some expenses and I had a new America fellowship. And yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, it was, that was hard to fund. Um, but I was like, so committed to doing it that I was like, look, I just want to see this through. I think it's possible to do this. And, um, you know, I think it was like a year into it that it was like after the, um, after the, the publication matter folded that, Eventually, I took it to the Times Magazine, but I'd been working on it for so long that I had like the fruits of that labor to show. Like, let me show you what happened when I cased this entire town of Kayara um, and found this many civilians. So they were able to take it. Um, and then later on, I sold the book about it. But I think what I realized is that if I was at an institution, which I've been at, on investigations teams, which I've done, I don't really have that much autonomy. I can choose or pitch a story, but the amount of time I spend on it will be limited to what's expected of me. And, you know, going beyond a year is going to be really difficult, like to be allowed that, right? Unless you're like the most famous investigative journalist who has built all of that kind of capital, your editors aren't going to say yes to that. And so my approach to that was, well, let me figure out how to fund this. Um, and to do this work independently outside of those traditional timelines. And so that meant like kind of building capacity over time. It meant that, you know, I applied for grants and like, yeah, I got rejected for a bunch of them, but then the Carnegie came through and then it was possible for me to do a lot of my most recent work. Um, I also started teaching for that reason and had these visiting professorships in which I would be at a semester at Columbia and the rest of the year abroad. 
Um, and that was really helpful. And, you know, there is by no means a solid profit model for great investigative journalism. Um, but there are, I, I don't know how to put this, but I, I would, to do these kinds of stories that I care about, I'd rather spread them out over a longer period of time and do them right. Yeah. Have all the investment and resources at the outset to do it in a way that I don't really believe would yield these big picture answers that we need most to have an informed debate about our wars. Oh my gosh, so well said. Can I ask, on the risk of ruining an excellent ending, can I just quickly, very quickly ask you, it's hard to know when you have a project that is actually so important and so good that it's worth risking all of that for? Like, what were the signals for you, if you can remember, that you knew that these things were worth, like that you weren't just having some manic fever dream where you were like, I can go to like Kabul and like do all of this shit on the ground and then get paid for it later, like, li like yeah. liquidating my retirement. Like, how did you decide that? Because I've done similar things and made similar risk assessments and they've also paid off, but like, yeah. it's it's really hard to know. Yeah, so I just inserted into the chat uh, a sort of tip sheet that I've done before on how you go through how a great investigative idea becomes a real possible pitch and a story wow. and the kind of questions you're gonna wanna go through. But for me, I think I knew I had it um, when I did my first visit to Kayara, when I did a sample, I went to 10 strikes on my first visit there and five of them had resulted in civilian casualties. And I was like, this is stunning to me. I don't know how representative this is. I'm still figuring out if this is an appropriate sample area, you know, but that first trip when I was able to go on the ground and look at these and I met my thought process back then was like, what if I case a single block or what if I case a single area and I get really local and intimate and I just tell you what the war was like for people on this one block, statistically what that resulted in, how many airstrikes and what happened here. And maybe I could expand that to a, you know, a, a larger area there. Um, and that's when I knew I had it. So you need a systemic, a systematic approach to an investigation. So with ghost schools, the second I was able to finally get my hands on that database, right? I was like, I have a systematic approach into this. Obviously you wanna ask yourself like, is this a problem? Is it important? Is there like scale to this? Why does it matter? And you're gonna wanna like kind of write up what you have as like a kind of um, like a deck almost as a kind of synopsis and just look at what you have and see if it meets some of the questions in the the uh, PDF that I just put into the chat. And you can figure out whether what you're really trying to pursue is, is worth the time and effort you want to put into it. Um, yeah, this was incredible. Thank you for that. I, like, I'm so glad I asked that follow-up question if for no other reason than we now have that that incredible, now I'm going to like, this is my cheat sheet for all of my pitch conversations, my editors going forward. Uh, this is incredible. Um, Asma, thank you so much for joining us. This was awesome. Please come on anytime you're bored and want to have a thoughtful conversation or even talk through something that you're thinking about or new research or anything. Um, it would be amazing to have you. And I hope we can have you on when you have your book and you're promoting it if we're still doing the show when that's happening. We would love it. Thank you for talking to both of you. And thank you, Scott, for those great questions. And Kate, in the chat. I really enjoyed this. I hope I wasn't yeah. too aggressive.
No, our, our chat is just very, our chat is like very sensitive and everyone is very nice to each other all the time. Yeah. And like even like mild, like kind of, even mild kind of like speaking over each other is kind of one of those things that is weird, but that's like, it, there's also a slight lag and everyone's coming through weird for me today. So, um, but anyways, this is amazing. Asmat, uh, if Ben was here, he would say that you're a great American. Um, uh, that's like Ben's tagline, but you truly are. This is like incredible work. I'm so glad you're doing it. I support you so much. I, yeah, this is great. And um, we will be back on Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. I don't know who the guest is, um, but until then, Scott? We can't have fun anymore, but any of us can become famous war correspondents just by like, like it's so easy. All you do is you, <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm, I'm so, I'm so glad that you, you laid it out like that. Um, I might try it tomorrow. Um, anyway, this was, this, this was really amazing and your work is breathtaking. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Osman. It was great to see you. Bye. 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 Because we're not allowed.